Quilt Shaw TV, uh, CKXU FM Radio 88.3 for their uh, support of SACPA and especially to the University of Lethbridge who not only support us uh, through advertising but financial support and once again to Country Kitchen. Uh, they're catering, it doesn't matter. They never know whether we're going to have 25 people or 100 people here and they seem to rise to the occasion every time. Okay, I'm <coughs> going to call uh, Debbie back up. And remember the hallmark of uh, SACPA is courtesy. Whether you agree or disagree with the speaker, please use courtesy. If I, when you go to the mic, identify yourself, keep your preamble short, and ask your questions. Thank you. Hi, Hi, I'm Henning Mundel. I have one probably very short question and one which the answer might take a little longer. The okay. question isn't that long. No, the one is just sort of a clarification of the peoples. Um, I visited Israel in 68, just around the anniversary of the Six Day War, and I drove through the countryside and I, I saw the villages of the Arabs. I saw the uh, kibbutz. I saw, I met Arab Christians. Um, now, m my question really is, when we talk about um, Palestinians, does that include all the Arabs in the Israel? Uh, and what about the Arab Christians? Are the, uh, okay, that's the one. The other question is, your question uh, at the, uh, for the start of the, for the topic, how do you see peace as possible? Okay, um, so on the book list, there's a book um, by a woman that talks a bit about the Arab Christians. So it's important to understand that in 47, when the Nakba or the catastrophe happened, um, that many Palestinians did not leave. And so they stayed, and they're called, um, uh, most of them are Christian, and so they stayed in Israel. And in that book, she's an Israeli woman who came back um, and got full citizenship. She lived in Britain and now lives in an Arab village. So within pa Israel proper, there are villages that are Arab villages, like you described. And, but they have uh, le less mm -hmm. human rights than the Israeli citizens who are of Jewish heritage. Yep, you bet. So when we talk about the Palestinians, we're talking about the people who live in Gaza, in East Jerusalem, and the West Bank. Yep, for sure, okay? And uh, that book is an excellent book to hear what the experience is like for Arab Christians. Yep, for sure. And many of them live in Haifa and in the northern part of Israel because Haifa was one of the areas that was very Palestinian in the time of um, the Nakba. How do I see peace happening? There is an Arab word called samud, which in the Christian tradition would be our faith, hope, and persistence. It means steadfast persistence. So peace is going to only be possible with steadfast persistence. As you can tell from the maps, it's not going to be simple. It's just like our issue with our First Nations people. How are we going to move forward with them, right? So it's going to take um, the Palestinians and Israeli peace activists really believe that it's going to take 
um, the international community, just like in apartheid in South Africa, to stand and hold Israel accountable to international law. Okay? And then the decision will have to be, well, what will the governance look like? But clearly within the Palestinians and Israeli peace activists that I worked with and that my the organization there works with, they believe that they're moving more to um, human rights for everybody, right? So that whatever the democracy looks like, in the Israeli constitution right now, the word democracy is not mentioned, right? So the intent was never to have a democracy in the for all citizens. It was in the beginning, in the from prior to 47. So that's what I believe it's going to take. It's going to take the international community. If you go online and look at our foreign policy, our government says they're in full support. They're still supporting a two-state solution. The infrastructure and facts on the ground don't support that anymore. And the Palestinians, many of them would say at the checkpoints, because when you're lying for 90 minutes, and if they have any English, you can chat, they would say the reality is we're talking about a country that's five hours to drive from east to west. So even if we have a Palestinian, like a Quebec structure, right, we still have to get along because all the ports are on the Mediterranean. So it's going to take steadfast, Samud's persistence, the international community to hold Israel accountable to the violations that they're doing, and then both parties to come together. And the reality is there is very weak lead leadership in Palestine right now, never mind the, the Israeli government moving more right-wing in the last election. The only reason the last election was called, it was called just before we left, was because Netanyahu was bending. Remember, they were going to create a Jewish state, and the Jewish state was not going to give democracy to everybody. And uh, the, he was bending on that a bit, and the right wing forced him then to call the election. So it's a very good question. Yeah. Terry. <coughs> Terry Shillington. Yeah. Uh, good to have you here, Debbie. Thanks. Uh, a small question to big question. I'm curious about what your uh, dress code was when you moved among Palestinians. But uh, in a larger sense, <coughs> I didn't hear you address uh, the question of Palestinian violence. And um, I think that uh, would be the conservative justification for the foreign policy under Harper, that these Palestinians are violent. Uh, Isra Israel is a small island in an Arab culture. We, we've got to protect them. We've got to stand firm with them. I wonder if you could speak to that. So in terms of the dress code, before we go, uh, the United Church is very intentional about our training. So uh, my husband and I attended 10 days Peace Watch training in, um, in uh, Geneva, and uh, in Switzerland. And the reason is because we believe in the accompaniment movement, which has been in Latin America as well as Israel and other parts of the world, that when we go, we have to know the culture that we're in. and. Um, some in some of my traveling, I read once, take nothing but pictures, leave nothing but footprints. It's the same thing there. So our dress code was very conservative. We were to dress. My husband's an ultramarathon runner. He had dreams of running in Bethlehem. Well, for one thing, you don't run <laughs> in uh, Bethlehem because the checkpoint is very close to his house. So we dressed very conservatively, Terry. We, we respected the custom. No, 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 we didn't do that, but we didn't wear shorts. Whenever we went, we knew we were going into a Muslim community. We never had bare shoulders. Uh, the vest I wore, um, we always wore that when we were out in public, so it was quite clear the role we were saying. So we dressed just like I was wearing today or in the pictures you saw. 
and skirts, again, were below the knees. It was really tough for some of the 24, 25-year-olds because they're used to leggings, and, but we just didn't. We just didn't because, again, we're going into a community that we have to respect their culture. And even the Palestinian Christians, relatively speaking, they're Russian Orthodox, they're Armenian, so they're more conservative than me growing up in the United Church. So again, you go in and you find out their traditions. So when we went into their churches for worship, we covered our heads. They provided scarves. And the other question, the Palestinian violence. So as I mentioned, there is violence. One thing is to be important to realize is that Israel has not signed on to the nuclear disarmament program. They have never allowed the United Nations to see what nuclear armament they have. So um, most of the violence that you hear about in the paper is guns, is uh, knives and stones. And when I was there and the shooting, just before I left, the shooting in the synagogue in West Jerusalem, that was the first time in 10 years a gun since the second Antifada had been used by a Palestinian. So th there is violence, but the scope of the violence right now, which, which has Palestinians and the international human rights and peace activists concerned, is that it's scattered youth, it's not organized, and that it's... Um, they're, um, they're scattered all over the West Bank and East Jerusalem, but they're also acting alone. It's not organized. So when the El-Axis mocks closed in 2000, and when I was there last October, um, they, they said if that had happened 10 years ago, the whole West Bank would have erupted by the closing of El-Axis mosque, but that didn't happen. So the day Al-Axis Mosque closed was my second week there, and I'm standing from, say, there to where Tad is sitting, and uh, there's the youth are locked out of their schools. There's two Muslim schools inside the compound of the mosque. This is the old city. It's 8.30 in the morning. They're going to school. They've been locked out because five Jewish people want to go in and pray, right? So they've closed the, mo the gates, and the Palestinians can't get in. The kids are standing there chanting, and honest to goodness, they threw a sound bomb and it imploded, and the kids scattered. And they're standing there, all they're doing is shouting. So I think there is violence. It's um, in, when it's reported, we never talk about resistance. We talk about terrorism, right? And so I think it's the language we use, but it's important to realize there is violence. What we're seeing is an escalation of hopelessness among Palestinian youth. And we know what happened in Germany when we had youth who were hopeless. We know what happened in Ireland when we had Catholic and Protestant youth, and that's the fear. So the other comment is about the Middle East and the surrounding countries, right? And uh, I can't answer that. I don't know the situation well enough, but I do know that many of the um, folks living in Jerusalem that are more politically astute than I am said that if there could be peace in Jerusalem, it would be the first step to peace in the rest of the Middle East. And so it's an argument that's used, but there's no doubt that Israel could match any time anything that's going on based on just what they have available that we know about, and we don't know one half. So when you use Nexus at our airport, that has been created in Israel at the checkpoints. Our police, our RCMP and our police are being trained because Israel has such incredible security. When a Palestinian walks through those checkpoints, they put their finger down, their identity up, and their whole life flashes before them. When I left um, Israel to come home, my biggest fear was that I would be held because at all the checkpoints, 
they know who you, they, who you are, and they're taking pictures of you constantly. I had to show my passport. So if I'm saying I'm going to Jerusalem in Israel, what am I doing at the checkpoint at Calandia? Because I had to show it every time I went through. And I was worried they could stop. They can strip search me. They can take my computer away and detain me for 12 hours. They would always let me back on the plane. So I don't know if that answers your question, Terry, but it's, it's truly the scope of the, the violence is improportionate, disproportionate. Sorry. Debbie, thank you. Douglas Mitchell. I just uh, want to rebut something I was at my table. I was uh, there was an accusation made that the British were responsible for all this, and that is absolute nonsense. I was there on the in Jerusalem 60 years ago almost, when on the day when the the uh, Ergen, the Haganah blew up the King David Hotel, and as you know at that time, we were the British forces were were the targets of the Israelis, and of course we learned then that talking about terrorism, the Israelis were the best of all terrorists that ever were. Now, the, and that was when British had the League of Nations mandate, uh, and it take me a while to get to this question, but uh, after, the, uh, after the Second World War, the League of Nations, uh, the uh, United Nations is formed, and what are they doing now? I mean, politically, the Americans, they've given them the, the uh, atomic bomb, and uh, they've been left now, the, the Palestinians themselves, have been let down, I think, considerably, not just by the United Nations, but by the, the world as a whole, including ourselves, and our previous prime minister, as you know, was tending to support the Israelis. So my question is, politically, I think there must be you must involve the politicians in the solution to this problem. And how are we going to do it? We all favor justice, as you do. And uh, I'd just like you to address this question of the politics that surround all this whole stromash that's happened since 1947. Okay, so I just want to go back to uh, one thing you triggered for me. In terms of recently, our government just signed uh, a Saudi, uh, an agreement with Saudi Arabia. And so when we think about what we can do, I mean, the question begs for me why we're supplying bombs to a country. So that would be one question around um, the Middle East and how we're contributing. I would encourage any of you, I just finished this book on the bus um, coming back. It was recommended to me by someone in a presentation. So it goes back to, it's called Against Our Better Judgment by Alison Weir, 2014. It's how the U.S. was used to create Israel. So it's really important to understand that this issue started way before 47. And so I, I won't go into the full detail, but it's really important. This, there is no one good guy or bad guy in this, right? It was um, an intentional strategy. It started out the Zionism that we like to use and label, which I try not to, is really uh, Ted Herzl wanted um, a nation based on Jewis for Jewish people, but it wasn't based on religion. And then there's a whole, this book explains much better than I can in 94 pages how um, the British were encouraged in many ways through political pressure and how Ted um, Truman at the time actually responded against the advice of his own State Department and his embassy officials in the Middle East to do what happened in 47. 
So yeah, it's not simply Britain gave up and went home. There was a whole bunch of stuff that went on for about 45 years before that moment. Uh, did I answer that question? Yeah, okay, great. Thanks, Debbie, for a very important uh, presentation. Mary Shillington here. Um, there was a discussion at our table wondering, has there ever been uh, any thought about making Jerusalem sort of a separate entity which could be all-inclusive? And did you hear anything about that, or, or what would your reaction be to that question? Thanks. Well, I went in 2012 and with my husband on an exposure tour, and I've grown up in the Christian tradition, so I always thought of Jerusalem as a holy city. And much to my chagrin, once I got there, it was one of the most unholy cities I saw. But just like in Bethlehem, the Christians, well, the Christians came after the time of Jesus, but uh, Jewish and Muslims were living together in peace for a long time. In Bethlehem, the church, the nativity is on one side of the square, and the mosque is on the other. And somewhere th in that city, there was probably a synagogue, I'm assuming, because Bethlehem was Jewish before it became Christian, right? And um, so I think your question is an important one. That's why the UN, the intent of the UN partition was to keep Jerusalem one. And there was never an understanding that it would be partitioned. But it's quite clear right now that the intent is to try and, and keep the Jewish population, as I described, in that boundary. So for example, the day after the Six-Day War, a census was taken. And if a Palestinian had fled the city because the Six-Day War was happening and was in the West Bank or Gaza or wherever they had fled, if they were not in the city that day, they lost their citizenship. So at, the, at that moment, any Palestinian has a card. And if you don't live in that city and show that that's your center of life, is the word they use, um, then you will lose and you, you have... you live in the West Bank. So I think that would be my hope. I would love, I mean, there's a rich tradition. When you walk in the old city and the Christian churches are there from hundreds of years, from Jesus' time, and you see the synagogues and you see the mosques, I mean, there's such potential for that to be a model for the rest of the world. So that's what I think we need to work for, and that's why we need peace, and but a just peace there. Yeah. Uh, my name is Frank Toth, Debbie. I met you before the the meeting started. I got a sweet from him. Apparently, that's quite true. Yeah, you, yeah. You, <laughs> you had the you had the best smile of the place, and I I donated chocolate to you for that. But anyway, this is the about the saddest story I have ever heard in my life. A, a true picture of people being totally imprisoned within their own homes. This is so serious, and yet governments around the world are supporting the uh, the other side of the of this equation. Now, as serious as this is, have you or your group ever been asked to speak at the United Nations on this situation? The only power in the world, it seems, that uh, could make moves towards. Uh, you know, uh, 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 some kind of discretionary move to financially even put pressure on Israel. So um, I'll just start by saying we couldn't even get a meeting with our ambassador while we were there, <laughs> who lived in Tel Aviv an hour away. Um, so uh, I, the group 
I'm not aware of EACE, the Ecumenical Accompaniment Program speaking, but I do know that the World Council of Churches has um, presented to a smaller group. There's, um, and I forget the name of the structure, but I don't believe the World Council of Churches has presented to, it's a security council that controls all the decisions and the U.S. has the veto power. So whenever anything tries to get to their agenda, it takes a lot of work. So no, I don't know um, if our group has ever presented. There's a number of us trying to figure out with this opportunity with our new government. In the last election, all three parties were mute on this topic. And so we're trying to figure out how to begin to work um, at, the, at the Ottawa level because we believe there's a window here. Um, and my husband just emailed me. He's, we sent a letter and CC'd it to Justin Trudeau today reminding them he hasn't heard back. I don't know if you know, just before Christmas, a, a Canadian photographer was shot, wounded, in Bethlehem with her camera in her hand taking pictures of the skunk uh, gas that's every day shot on the refugee camp at 3.30 and she was shot in the leg, and our government did not respond. I can say if any, and she's Palestinian-Canadian, if any Canadian got shot anywhere in the world, I suspect our government would have made a statement. So we've got a lot of work to do. And the UN, one presentation I did um, just before Christmas with Dean in Edmonton, a woman from Rwanda was there who lived during the genocide, and it came as a refugee to Canada, and she said, where is the UN on this? Are they acting the same way? And I mean, how do you respond? I mean, this is a woman who's lived through a horror. So, so each of us can write our MPs and ask them, where are they? Look up our policy. It's clear. Yeah. Thanks. Hi. Hi. Uh, my name's Austin Fennell, and thanks for coming to speak today. It's good of you to um, give us some insight into uh, uh, what you saw and heard, and, and particularly from your perspective because a great deal of what we hear from we get through the press, the public yes. press. Um, <clears throat> I guess I have uh, one question that could be viewed in three different ways. Uh, <clears throat> the first is, um, what do you perceive to be the attitude of Canadians towards the Palestinians and Israelis? And I'm not sure you even want to touch that one. But the other one is, what did you hear the Palestinians saying about Canada? What did you hear the Israelis saying about Canada? Take the last two if you prefer those two questions. <laughs> well, I first of all want to say, just to touch on the attitude, because I can't speak, because, I mean, sitting at my table, we're a wide representation of Canada. But what I will say, uh, Dean and I, counting you folks, have spoken to almost a 1,000 people in a year about this issue. We've done many presentations, BC, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. And what I will say, most of the time, it's shock and that they didn't know. So I think for me, I go in always with that spirit. And I do have, a, and I'll use the word Zionist, Jewish guy who follows me. He lives in Edmonton. He sends me all sorts of stuff, and I just don't engage. Because I believe democracy is about the middle, not the extremist. And so it's the swing vote, I call it. It's the people that I believe are moderate, that are opening their hearts and ears to the story, that's who I try to spend my time with. So um, most of the time, people are shocked and grateful uh, to, hear this, to hear some of what I've shared today. Um, Palestinians, both times we went, they, it's interesting, they separate the government from the people. So they would say, why is the government not supporting, uh, is so friendly to Israel? Why aren't they listening? Why aren't they supporting justice for us? It was never Canadians are bad. So in my 
my thinking, I try to present the same way. I can tell you when I stood with women in black every Friday in the square in Jerusalem, I had a shaving can thrown at me. I got the finger. I was told to go home because, of course, they know I'm an international with my best. And I just ignored that because in a true democracy, all voices should be heard. I'm just not going to engage and waste my energy with those voices. But the peace activists that I worked with were just so grateful because they've been at this since 1947, right? And they need to know just the visible presence. It's like when you show up at a friend's house and someone has died, just your presence alone is nothing. So, yeah, that's kind of how I looked at it. So I hope I answered it. Debbie, I'm Trevor Page. I'm a retired United Nations director. Ah. And I'll address some of the comments on the UN. But first, um, as you probably know, Palestine's chief negotiator with the Israelis for many years, Saeb Arakat, recently broke down in a BBC TV interview and said, we failed. There is no state to state solution. We've been at it for years. It's a failure. It's dead. So you mentioned Canada's supporting a two state policy. I don't think it's a question of updating Canada's foreign policy on this because when Israel and Palestine governments are saying it's dead, Western governments whose value systems are similar to Canada's don't really know how to deal with this. Okay, so, so there is no solution. But the two protagonists on the ground say there's not. Question, please. As far as the UN is concerned, um, there seems to be a, a, a big misunderstanding generally that why doesn't the UN sort out the problem? The UN is just a meeting room. It's the member states exactly. that decide and give the UN its marching orders. And they haven't done so in the case of Palestine. There are a few more situations around the world wh which are similar. So that, that is a big misunderstanding. So, if you want a question, why is it that your organization is still holding out hope when the two protagonists on the ground say it's dead, it's over? Holding out hope for a two-state solution? Okay, so I have to be clear, my, the EAPPI doesn't hold out hope for a two-state solution. What we are holding out hope for is... Um, the end to the occupation and a just peace. So that's all I can say. I mean, we're not holding out hope. And all you have to do is look at the maps and spend some time there, and you know it's dead. Yeah, so that's going to be the challenge. Yeah. Great. Oh, thank you very much, Debbie. And thank all of you for coming. And next week, uh, 